I next met with Dr. Ken Anderson to chat about ash papers and multiple myeloma, and to begin, he put this year's meeting in historical context. I think, Ash, this year was one more time providing practice-changing information. In particular, we learned more how to use some of the drugs that have already been approved, lenalidomide, bortezomib, etc., But importantly, the second generation of agents on the proteasome inhibitor side, carlfilzomib and MLN9708, and on the immunomodulatory drug side, palmalidomide, were both featured at the American Society of Hematology. And in addition to the second generation proteasome inhibitors and IMIDs, there were yet entirely new classes of drugs as well. There were monoclonal antibodies. There were kinesin spindle inhibitors, entirely new targeted agents that have great promise for the future. So let's just start going through some of these papers specifically, and certainly one of the most interesting presentations was by Demopolis et al., looking at homolidomide, a next-generation image that subsequently was approved very recently by the FDA. So pomalidomide is a second-generation immunomodulatory drug roughly a log more potent than lenalidomide, which is already approved for treatment in multiple myeloma. Now, pomalidomide, like lenalidomide and other immunomodulatory drugs, targets the tumor and the microenvironment. And pomalidomide has gone through phase one, two clinical trials. And in three prior phase two clinical trials, one in the United States, one at the Mayo Clinic, and one in France, in patients whose myeloma is refractory to both lenalidomide and bortezomib, this new second-generation immunomodulatory drug pomalidomide achieves 30 to 40% response with about eight months' duration and survival in terms of years. Demopolis et al. at the American Society of Hematology presented a late-breaking abstract of pomalidomide, 4 milligrams orally for 21 days, with low-dose dexamethasone, 40 milligrams orally once a week, compared with high-dose dexamethasone, 40 milligrams orally, four days in a row, on, off, on, off, on, off. So pomalidomide, low-dose dex versus high-dose dex. In relapsed refractory myeloma, patients who had received both lenalidomide and bortezomib, And what he showed in an oral session is that the response rate, progression-free survival, and overall survival was statistically significantly improved in the relapsed refractory patients who received pomalidomide low-dose dexamethasone. Any comment on the tolerability? Kind of, it seemed like very well tolerated. Yes, pomalidomide is very well tolerated. There is some myelosuppression and low platelet count but this rarely translated into infectious complications or the need for dose reduction or discontinuation. Unlike thalidomide, pomalidomide does not have somnolence, constipation, or neuropathy. And in my experience, it has less myelosuppression than does lenalidomide. What about thrombosis and the need for thrombosis prevention? Right. It's an immunomodulatory drug that is pomalidomide. So like its precursors, both thalidomide and lenalidomide, one does need to prophylax with at least low-dose aspirin 
or if the patients have a higher risk of clotting for other reasons, then we use more aggressive therapy, oral anticoagulants or anoxaparin. There was an oral presentation by Mark et al. looking at clarithromycin, pomalidomide, and dexamethasone. Any comments on that? And, you know, is clarithromycin a viable, you know, alternative in this disease? Is there interest in it? Yes. So clarithromycin has been combined with the immunomodulatory drugs, first thalidomide, then lenalidomide, and now in this year's ASH by Dr. Mark and colleagues together with pomalidomide. Now we know that clarithromycin by itself, it's an antibiotic. It doesn't have anti-myeloma activity. There are clinical trials done in France, in Canada, and at the Mayo Clinic, single-agent clarithromycin does not have any activity. However, when you combine it with the immunomodulatory drugs, you apparently change the metabolism so that the level of drug and the level of drug activity, more importantly, is augmented in that setting. So the regimen that you may have heard of called the BIRD regimen, which was clarithromycin together with lenalidomide and dexamethasone was very active. So at this year's ASH, same exact analogous combination, pomalidomide plus clarithromycin plus dexamethasone, very, very active in relapsed and relapsed refractory myeloma. So it was very exciting and it was very well tolerated. So I want to ask you about a couple of papers on sort of something related to IMIDS, which is the Cerebron assay. There are two abstracts, 931 and 194. I've talked with Keith Stewart a lot about this over the last couple of years. It's really a fascinating story. Can you explain what it is and what these two papers reported? Right. There were two papers, one from the Mayo Clinic with Keith Stewart and a second one from Paula Neary and many colleagues. She's up in Alberta, Canada. But the exciting idea is trying to get a handle better than ever before on how the immunomodulatory drugs, in particular lenalidomide and pomalidomide, work. We and others have had multiple different biologic activities, but the binding partner in a myeloma cell for the immunomodulatory drugs had not been defined. Now, the Japanese several years ago described cerebron as a binding protein for thalidomide, And what these two abstracts have done as the next step, if you will, to show that lenalidomide and even pomalidomide do in fact have as one of their targets, cerebron. Not only that, they've tried to put it into a clinical context. And so both abstracts, for example, in particular the one from Dr. Neary and colleagues in Canada, has actually looked at the likelihood of a response to lenalidomide if you have a high cerebron level versus a low cerebron level. And in fact, the response rate is much higher if the tumor is expressing cerebron than if the myeloma cell is not. Now, it's not 100%. In other words, not everybody who has cerebron responds and not everybody who lacks cerebron does not respond. So the positive and negative predictive value as a biomarker is probably not high enough to be useful. But the principle nonetheless is real, and I think it's an important advance. Dr. Stewart and his colleagues also confirmed this data, but also showed and made, I think, a very astute observation that high cerebron levels 
were in fact predictive for a better outcome. So patients with hyperdiploid myeloma had a higher cerebellum level, and as I mentioned a minute ago, were much more likely to be responsive to the IMIDs. So it may be a marker, Neil, of biology of myeloma as much as it is also a response correlate to response with immunomodulatory drugs. Now, this assay, the authors talk about how quantitative and you know, reproducible it is. It's done on the myeloma cells? Yes. And do you know anything more in terms of how it's done, the type of assay? I don't, actually. I think there are several different variations. I know one can do immunoblotting, and I think there's an immunofluorescence assay as well. The only thing I want to just point out is, as useful as it is in terms of having a correlation with response, one has to be very careful because there are mechanisms of resistance to IMIDs other than a low cerebellum level. So one can still have resistance to the IMIDs and have a high cerebellum level. Conversely, at very low cerebellum levels, people can still respond. So it's not all or none. And I think the picture remains open that there may be more partners for the immunomodulatory drugs than the current cerebron alone. And my understanding also is that the cerebron also is involved in teratogenesis of thalidomide? That's right. I think that's very likely a very strong correlation here, that in model systems that binding to cerebron does inhibit angiogenesis. So the anti-angiogenic effect in a developing fetus is very likely correlated with the teratogenic effects of these class of drugs noted many decades ago. So sort of continuing on in terms of the concept of pomalidomide, there are a number of presentations on carfilzomib, but one in particular I thought was interesting, a phase 1-2 trial looking at carfilzomib and pomalidomide in dexamethasone, sort of like an RVD second generation. Can you talk a little bit about that paper? Surely. Um, I was privileged to be at the FDA this past summer, 2012, when Carl Filzemib was presented and in July received accelerated approval for relapsed refractory myeloma. That would be myeloma that's refractory to bortezomib and exposed to an imid. In that context, literally when there aren't other therapies, Carl Filzemib achieved a response rate of about 20 to 24% with an eight-month duration of response and overall survival of 15 months. Now, that is the original accelerated approval, and then carfilzomib has subsequently been combined with lenalidomide and dexamethasone versus lenalidomide, dexamethasone as a therapy for relapsed myeloma and full approval of carfilzomib in that setting. Now, what has happened at ASH is that the novel pomalidomide immunomodulatory drug has been combined with carfilzomib, the novel proteasome inhibitor. And in fact, Dr. Shah from MD Anderson presented in an oral session at ASH the combined drug experience. So it's carfilzomib, pomalidomide, and dexamethasone. Although this was a dose escalation, a phase one clinical trial, the MTD was actually the first dose. It was pomalidomide, 4 milligrams, dexamethasone, 40 milligrams, so pomalidomide, low-dose dex, 
together with the initial dose of carfilzomib, which is 20-27 milligram per meter squared. In other words, both the pomalidomide and the carfilzomib are so potent that there really wasn't the opportunity to escalate either one when they put them in combination. What was exciting, though, is that the response rates were, in fact, higher, as you might predict, in the range of 50% in relapsed refractory myeloma, and at the MTD, it was quite tolerated. So this study further confirms the very exciting ability to combine an immunomodulatory drug, in this case, pomalidomide, with a proteasome inhibitor, in this case, carfilzomib, They're both second-generation, more potent drugs in their class, and even in relapsed refractory myeloma, which is refractory to lenalidomide and bortezomib, even in the context of adverse cytogenetics, we were achieving something like 50% response rates. And of course, last year at ASH, we saw the paper looking at the so-called CRD regimen, carfilzomib, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone, except that was up front. And we saw an update with Dr. Jacobubia at all at ASCO and, you know, tremendous response rates there. Any thoughts about carfilzomib in the upfront setting? Are there any situations right now where you'd attempt to use it? For example, a patient with uh, serious peripheral neuropathy pre-existing. Right. So carfilzomib has been explored in the upfront setting. And one abstract actually from the American Society of Hematology this year actually did the carfilzomib lenalidomide dexamethasone regimen initial treatment, just as Dr. Yakuboviak had previously reported. And this abstract was from the National Cancer Institute with Ola Langren and colleagues. But what they did was to show that the overall response rate to lenalidomide, carfilzomib, and dexamethasone is nearly universal and the extent of response is also very, very high. What they did was they looked for molecular complete remissions at the level of multi-flow immunofluorescence. They looked for the stringent response criterion with serum proteins and kappa-lambda free light chains, but they also added in PET-CT scanning to their assay for complete response. And this is probably the most stringent criterion for response that we've ever used in myeloma. But it highlights that when you put carfilzomib together with lenalidomide and dexamethasone, the frequency of response is overwhelming, but so is the extent of response as well. I'll mention two other settings in which carfilzomib was used upfront in the transplant eligible categories. There was an abstract by Peter Sonneveld at the American Society of Hematology where he used carfilzomib, thalidomide, and dexamethasone before and as a consolidation after high-dose melphalan and autologous stem cell transplant. And he showed very exciting results in terms of the ability of this three-drug regimen to achieve high response rates and to increase and consolidate the response to transplant. And the Mayo Clinic group has what's called the cyclone regimen, which is again carfilzomib, thalidomide, dexamethasone, and they also include cyclophosphamide. But I mention it because it is using carfilzomib initially, and it's in the transplant candidates, and they were able to have very impressive results as well. And one other quick abstract I'll mention to you is from Dr. Palumbo, 
where he actually used carfilzomib cyclophosphamide low dose and dexamethasone as initial therapy in the non-transplant candidates in patients, the majority of whom were age 75 years or older. And it was very well tolerated and achieved high response rates there too. So these are all examples of carfilzomib moving to the initial treatment. And again, any situations right now outside a trial setting where you would use carfilzomib up front, the one that I'd be curious about is the unusual patient who might have had a pre-existing peripheral neuropathy. Yeah, I think that's a very good point, and I think that is, in my opinion and for practice, would be an indication to move early on with this very potent proteasome inhibitor. I'm not sure if you mentioned it, but any comments on the phase two study looking at infusional carfilzomib by Lenvi et al.? Yeah, that was a very interesting study at the Memorial Sloan Kettering, and it's a very positive story, but it is also one of caution. So what she did, and she reported in an oral session at the American Society of Hematology, was attempt to escalate the dose of carfilzomib from 2027 up to as high as 56 milligram per meter squared. And this had been done previously with the suggestion that there might be a higher response rate, in other words, a dose response. So Dr. Linvi and her colleagues reported that you could, in fact, escalate the dose of carfilzomib and give it as an infusion, but it was, I believe, 41% of the patients had to discontinue the treatment because as one got to the higher doses, there was a much higher incidence of cardiac and pulmonary complications, congestive heart failure, et cetera. So I think it, to me, is very positive on the one hand that we have a new proteasome inhibitor that's very active at the approved dose of 20 to 27 milligram per meter squared, but it is so potent that we really need to be careful as we escalate it because although there may be a dose response, there may also be more complications or adverse events as one gets to higher doses. One of the major advantages of bortezomib is that it can be used in patients with renal failure. What about carfilzomib? The initial experience when phase one trials were being carried out with carfilzomib was complicated in the early days with a transient elevation of creatinine seen. When that was recognized, there was a question of tumor lysis in a couple of those early patients, but practice changed in two ways. Firstly, there was hydration given with the carfilzomib initial treatment. The dose escalation scheme from 20 milligram per meter squared and then up to 27 milligram was carried out. And thirdly, low dose dexamethasone was added. So hydration, care in terms of the starting dose and then escalating up, and low-dose steroids were added. Since that has gone forward, and that is the way that carfilzomib is currently administered and registered, we really haven't had issues with renal dysfunction. So renal dysfunction is not a contraindication to using this drug. One other question about carfilzomib, I get a lot from oncologists, is to clarify the issue with dyspnea and whether or not there's any cardiac dysfunction? Well, I think that, again, here, at the dose at which we have registration of this drug, the 20-27 milligram regimen with low-dose dexamethasone, the toxicity, as was highlighted at the FDA hearing and more generally, is not that different than what we've seen with other novel agents. 
There is some toxicity, cardiac and pulmonary toxicity, but again, the benefit-risk ratio is very much in favor of using this novel agent. Where I think we need to be careful is when we escalate up to higher doses, I'm not saying that we can't do it, but we need to be aware of the studies such as that from Memorial, the Dr. Lenvi study and others, where you can apparently see an increase in the frequency of the cardiac and pulmonary issues. So the answer is that the dose at which it's registered, there's very strong evidence that it's efficacious and very tolerated, and efforts are underway with protocol treatments to see if we can't escalate up and maintain that favorable therapeutic index. Now, is there any debate or question about the amount of hydration? Because at one point I heard that questioned as being part of the issue. The reason that would be considered and was discussed is that patients with myeloma often could be elderly and might have cardiac issues quite apart from their multiple myeloma and couldn't perhaps tolerate a large amount of fluids could tip them over, in other words, into congestive heart failure. I don't think that that debate is ongoing much any longer. I think that just some hydration administered around the time of carfilzomib has really made a big difference, and it honestly has markedly improved the therapeutic index there. So let's shift towards new agents, particularly those that look very promising, and one pretty high up on the list that, again, we heard about last year, at the ASH meeting, we again heard about was the oral proteasome inhibitor, MLN9708. And there was a paper presented in the oral session this year by Kumardal. So we are blessed in multiple myeloma because we've had new proteasome inhibitors, starting with bortezomib as the first generation. We've just discovered and discussed carfilzomib as an intravenous second generation proteasome inhibitor. Both of those are IV chymotriptic inhibitors of the proteasome. Now, MLN9708 is coming very quickly through clinical trials. It is an oral boronic acid-based chymotriptic inhibitor. As a single agent, it seems to be active in advanced multiple myeloma and well-tolerated. The main side effect is rash. We don't see much in the way of significant neuropathy. And in fact, it seems to work in the preclinical studies against bortezomib-resistant myeloma cell lines and in the clinic in patients whose myeloma is resistant to bortezomib. Before you go on, you mentioned chymotriptic, and I was thinking about some of the graphics you were showing there at your Karnofsky talk at ASCO last year. Can you talk a little bit more about what chymotriptic means and sort of what the mechanisms are of these different proteasome inhibitors? Surely. So there are, in the proteasome realm, both constitutive and immunoproteasome activities. In terms of proteasome function, there is the three subsets, if you will, of chymotriptic, triptic, and caspase-like proteasome activities, all of which can be implicated in degradation of ubiquitinated proteins. On the immunoproteasome side, there are also subunits that can be implicated in the processing of peptides as part of the normal immune recognition process. So bortezomib and carfilzomib are chymotriptic selective inhibitors. Bortezomib is a reversible inhibitor, and carfilzomib is an irreversible covalent inhibitor. 
so that the depth and the duration of inhibition of the chymotriptic activity is greater, 80%, and longer with carfilzomib than it is with bortezomib. Now, as we move to this new MLN9708, it's a boronic acid-based chymotriptic inhibitor, as is bortezomib, but it is oral. It has a longer half-life of four to five days, so it's an oral agent that you take only once or twice a week. But these are all chymotriptic inhibitors of the proteasome. Honestly, we don't know yet whether it's better to be selective and inhibit just the chymotriptic activity or whether it's better to be more broad and hit more than one of those activities. But this MLN compound, I've heard that it's kind of similar to bortezomib? It's very similar. It's a boronic inhibitor, as is bortezomib. It has a very high on-off rate. It has a very similar area under the curve, as does bortezomib. And perhaps, especially subcutaneous bortezomib, so perhaps that's the reason that the neuropathy that has been observed with this oral proteasome inhibitor is really quite low in its incidence or severity. So any thoughts about this all-oral regimen that was discussed here? I guess kind of like RBD, except instead of the VMLN. Yeah, we're very excited about it. The idea of putting a proteasome inhibitor together with an immunomodulatory drug, and we've learned it with bortezomib, we've learned it with carfilzomib. Now we're seeing the same thing when we use MLN9708, and when we combine it in this example, MLN9708, lenalidomide dexamethasone, again, almost universal responses, very well tolerated. Again, one oral tablet a week. I think if this continues along the same pathway, that we are very likely to have an all-oral regimen to treat multiple myeloma in the future. So would you like to have it available now? I mean, you do see single-agent activity in people who've progressed in other proteasome inhibitors. Yes, we would like to have it as soon as we can. Where it is at the present time in its development is as follows. The phase one, two single-agent studies are completed. The study that we are talking about has moved it already into the early management of myeloma, lenalidomide MLN9708 and dexamethasone as initial therapy. But what has happened is already there's a phase three trial ongoing of MLN9708, lenalidomide, and dexamethasone versus lenalidomide, dexamethasone for full approval in relapse myeloma. In other words, they went from phase one clinical trial of a single agent, skipped phase two, and went right to the registration trial of MLN9708 Lendex versus Lendex in relapse myeloma. It's going to be an interesting one to see. So it's always seemed a little bit weird that there weren't more or any monoclonal antibodies in myeloma, and yet you see them in a lot of other diseases, but particularly for myeloma. We have seen some interesting data on elotuzumab, but at ASH, Plesner et al. presented some data on daratumumab, a CD38 monoclonal antibody. It looked pretty interesting. Yes, the daratumumab is directed at CD38 antigen. We have studied this many years ago. It's directed at an antigen that was originally called T for T-cell 10. So this antigen is expressed on activated T-cells and activated monocytes. 
it's on activated B cells and also on endothelial cells. It eventually was called CD38, cluster designation 38, when it got categorized. But suffice it to say, although strongly expressed on myeloma, it's expressed on other hematopoietic lineages and endothelial cells. So the concern was whether or not it would have a therapeutic window or index that would allow it to be given safely. Fortunately, what Dr. Plesner and his colleagues showed from Copenhagen is in fact that this naked antibody, which mediates ADCC and CDC, and actually directly triggers apoptosis of myeloma cells, this antibody achieved marked responses and a significant fraction of stable disease. Over half of the patients either responded or had stable disease, even in the setting of relapsed refractory non-responsive myeloma to proteasome inhibitors and immunomodulatory drugs. So this antibody looks active and was very well tolerated. So this is exciting, and this antibody is now going to go forward, not only as a single agent, but in combination with lenalidomide and dexamethasone. Lenalidomide does augment the ADCC, antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity of antibodies, and that is what's happening with elituzumab, lenalidomide, dexamethasone, and in a similar fashion, it will be done here with this new antibody, daratumumab. Your group did an oral presentation, Paul Richardson did, looking at elituzumab with Len and Dex. Anything you want to say about that paper? Yeah, I think it's exciting. I alluded to it a minute ago that when you combine lenalidomide with elituzumab, you markedly augment the ADCC activity. In the phase two trial that was updated by Paul Richardson, there is still the 80 to 90% response rates What's remarkable is the duration of response. Remember that lenalidomide dexamethasone, actually high-dose dexamethasone, was registered in relapsed myeloma with a progression-free survival of about 11 months, response rate overall 60%. What we're seeing in this phase two trial now, when you combine lenalidomide with elituzumab and low-dose dex, not the high-dose dex, is a response rate of 80% and a progression-free survival, which is well over 20 months, and it has not been reached in terms of the median. So what would apparently be true is we're going to at least double the progression-free survival by adding elituzumab to lenalidomide dexamethasone. That's really quite remarkable. So anything else that was presented at ASH you want to comment on? I think the only other comment I might make is that we are very excited about, in myeloma, the three drug combinations. We've talked here about an imid immunomodulatory drug, lenalidomide, pomalidomide, proteasome inhibitors, bortezomib, carfilzomib, MLN9708, and proteasome inhibitors being combined with the imids. There were abstracts that are trying to add a fourth drug to this combination and even make it better. And so Dr. Laniel from the Emory Cancer Center, for example, added vorinostat, the histone deacetylase inhibitor. And Jonathan Kaufman from his group presented in an oral session that when you add those drugs together, you can markedly increase the response rate. 
There is strong science behind why a histone deacetylase inhibitor could add to proteasome inhibitors on the one hand and add to the imids on the other. Although the response rates were very high to this four drug regimen, the side effects were also very high. And we do have coming along isoform selective histone deacetylase inhibitors that may be better partners to add to the lenalidomide or the imid proteasome inhibitor combination. But I guess what I would say is, at least as of now in practice, it's a three-drug regimen that we are using most of the time, incorporating an immunomodulatory drug and a proteasome inhibitor. But we can watch in the future because I think other targeted therapies like a HDAC histone deacetylase inhibitor or like a monoclonal antibody, I think, four or five agents, I think we're going to start to see not only universal responses, but a very high extent of response. And we're really well on our way to making this a chronic illness and hopefully someday cure.